unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grand Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Anyone who has even casually glanced at the news over the past several weeks would be hard-pressed to miss the plethora of headlines about the air pollution crisis engulfing northern India. Every year, as late fall rolls around, air pollution across North India, including in the nation's capital of Delhi, climbs to levels that make life almost unlivable for hundreds of millions of residents. As bad as the crisis is, the situation is not helpless. My guest on the show this week has spent years trying to evaluate solutions to what seems like an intractable problem. Anand Sudarshan is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Warwick and a senior fellow at the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. Anand's research looks at the full spectrum of energy and environmental policy, including environmental regulation, air pollution, climate change, energy efficiency, electricity access, and renewable policy. To talk more about his work, Anand joins me today from his office in Warwick. Anand, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for the invitation, Milan. So I want to start by maybe establishing for our listeners some basic facts about air pollution in India to try to put the country in some kind of you know comparative context. Uh, you know, you've noted in some of what you've written that air pollution is obviously a global problem. Uh, it has significant uh, environmental consequences, significant public health consequences. So it's not an India-specific problem by any means. Yet. India does appear to be something of an outlier. I mean, it seems like every year some publication or another puts out a list of the world's most polluted cities, and Indian cities seem to dominate You know, the top 10, the top 20, the top 30 of this list every year. Tell us a little bit about how bad India's air is relative to the world around it. Yeah, so I think uh, today if you were to look at a satellite map of pollution uh, over the globe, Uh, South Asia would stand out as the single most uh, polluted part of uh, the inhabited planet uh, uh, in 2020, 2023. So it's not just India, it's India, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, and also uh, Nepal. Um, And that's actually, you know, we talk about India and China. So if you went back 10 years, China would look as bad uh, China has done remarkably well in cutting pollution and, you know, South Asia has got worse. So so now that region kind of stands alone. Uh, those lists of the 10 most polluted cities, I mean, those ranks are sort of, uh, you know, somewhat sort of substantively meaningless. They are statements. Um, uh, they're statements about both where the data is and where the pollution is. Uh, so I'd say I don't know whether the most polluted city is in India or, or Pakistan or is a small town uh, or the city of New Delhi. That's uh, sort of harder to tease out. But all of these places are amongst the, are the most polluted on the planet. In your work, you have highlighted, and you just kind of alluded to it a second ago, the lack of high quality data on air pollution, you know, noting that this has often been a key obstacle for the effective regulation of polluting industries. You know, I think we've seen over the past decade or more a growing awareness of India's air pollution crisis. Do you think we've seen a significant improvement in data collection and availability? So that's a great question. We have, uh, when governments talk about the data they are missing, 
they're often talking about uh, monitors that measure how much air pollution there is in the city. So that's in the ambient. Or they're talking about studies which tell them uh, sort of what fraction of overall air pollution comes from which source. Um, on those two, uh, there has been some improvement, although it's been remarkably slow. Uh, but you'll notice that especially on the first, that does not lead to a solution. I mean, we know Delhi, for example, is incredibly polluted and so is Uttar Pradesh. You can put a bunch of ground monitors in and they will give you a precise number or you can look at satellite data and you'll get an approximate number. Either way, the problem remains, which is how you reduce that pollution. So uh, when I talked about uh, a lack of data in industry, now this is data on how much individual factories are polluting. Uh, and this remains uh, uh, remarkably poor. Uh, there have been efforts in India to improve it by mandating sort of these, uh, you know, electronic devices that automatically measure pollution. Um, those devices are not used in actual regulation. Uh, a lot of them have been installed, uh, but are not producing data. It's not publicly available. Uh, it tends to be low quality. So I would say the problem there is uh, not at all been solved. And that that leads, that's a solutions issue because if I don't know how much uh, a factory is emitting uh, and I'm not got good data and reliable data on that, uh, then it's harder for me to regulate uh, that emission source. You know, maybe I should have stepped back for a second and just you know ask you to explain for us lay people, you know, what is the measure we care about? Whether it is you know coming from vehicles, whether it's coming from industry, we hear this term, uh, particulate matter. We see um, uh, these these the state around PM two point five. You know, tell us about what it is that we actually care about in order to determine how polluted the air actually is. Yeah, so that's a great question. There's more than one air pollutant out there. Uh, the one that we are referring to for the most part uh, is PM 2.5. We're referring to that because this problem in South Asia and sort of when we talk about air pollution globally uh, is largely about PM 2.5. So these are fine particles that can get into your lung. They can cause sort of... Uh, various cardiovascular uh, you know, diseases and significantly shorten life expectancy. So there's a lot of data that has emerged over the last decade, decade and a half on exactly how bad these uh, small particles are. So that's sort of what we're measuring in the air when we are uh, trying to determine whether a city or a part of the world is highly polluted or not. Now, once you figure that out, you need to figure out where these particles are coming from. Uh, and that's where you get to the question of, okay, which sources, you know, you know that transport vehicles produce some of them, uh, people burning sort of fuel wood at home will produce some of them, factories burning coal will produce some of them. And so the what we call a source apportionment exercise is trying to figure out uh, who's contributing uh, the most or how much is each source contributing. And then finally, there's individual data, and that's sort of if I'm regulating a car or I'm regulating a factory, that's your smog test, or that's kind of the audit of a plant that an environmental auditor might do. And that's saying this particular vehicle or this particular factory um, is producing so much pollution, and how does that line up with the laws on paper uh, that regulate things? Um, so there's data at all three steps. 
the data you need to actually enforce anything is the one at the third step, which is how much an individual entity is polluting, because that's where the law uh, applies. So, so I'm glad that you took us here, Anant, because it's a it's a perfect segue to talking about what's happening in New Delhi. Uh, it is hard to talk about India's crisis. I mean, not just India's crisis, South Asia's air pollution crisis, without talking about what's happening in the nation's capital. Uh, Delhi's own government has called the city, especially during the winter months, a quote-unquote toxic gas chamber. Uh, this past month, we've seen AQI, or the Air Quality Index, uh, ratings uh, of the AQI that are literally you know, off the charts. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, out there, and, and perhaps a lot of misinformation. Tell us a little bit about why this problem is so acute in Delhi, and, and if we can do our own, you know, kind of um, uh, allocation of, to, of of who's to blame or, or which industries or, or which forms of pollutants are to blame, how would we go about doing that? Yeah, so um, Delhi has a particular problem in winter, which kind of highlights the air pollution problem that exists throughout the year, which is uh, it has there's a meteorological uh, phenomenon called thermal inversions which I won't get into. It's something that uh, affected LA as well. But basically what it means is that pollutants that are entering the airshed above Delhi get trapped close uh, to the ground. And so what that means is think of it as amplifying the problem anyway. There's a bunch of uh, sources of pollution in the city. And then in the winter, meteorology causes uh, all of that pollution to stay close to where we are uh, and and really take those uh, levels of air pollution super high. Now, we can't do anything about meteorology, so it does not necessarily uh, change kind of the the public policy goals. It merely shines a, magn puts a magnifying glass to the problem in the winter. Um, if you think about what we can do about it, a lot of the confusion... Um, a lot of the confusion and sort of hot air and controversy around actually solving the air pollution problem has to do with this fact that there are two or three weeks of the year when pollution levels are incredibly high and everybody starts talking about it. And those two or three weeks of the year are incredibly high, partly because of meteorology and partly because there is one single source of pollution, which is... Uh, you know, uh, the burning of agricultural residue in neighboring states, uh, you know, when this is in between two cropping cycles, so farmers set fire to uh, the leftover stock from harvesting paddy in preparation for the next uh, for the next cycle. So uh, that produces like this spike in pollution, which combines with the meteorology to turn it into an off the chart situation. Uh, the problem is that the you know there's a lot of conversation then about this particular source and those particular two or three weeks in the year, uh, and we forget perhaps that Delhi is incredibly polluted actually throughout the year. It's just not polluted in this off the charts way. It's not a literal gas chamber. Uh, it's shortening lives, but uh, you know, but you don't see it as obviously. Um, and then, you know, when you zoom out over the year, then there are other sources that become really important. Uh, transport is one of them. Um, you know, uh, power plants and industry are another. Um, construction and road dust and so on are, are a third. Um, and so, you know, then the problem becomes kind of multi-sectoral and, and sort of you need action at, at all ends. Um, 
But this sort of spike in these three months uh, causes complications because it, it means everybody's talking about it at that time. Uh, and then when those three weeks sort of, sorry, pass, uh, you suddenly have conversations on something else and nothing actually gets done. So, so, so you mentioned meteorology. Uh, what about geography? I mean, you know, um, if you're looking at a map, right, I mean, you see this belt of pollution, which is kind of along the Indo-Gangetic plain. Um, is this something to do with, you know, uh, being ringed by mountains, the Himalayas, you know, trapping pollution, um, you know, over this area? Is that a factor at all? Well, it's not it's not so much trapping pollution. There are mountains to one side. There are no mountains uh, to the south. So I think that broader phenomenon across North India uh, is is a statement about very high population density, um, lots of small industry, bad regulation of those industry, uh, agricultural burning in the winter. So it's it's, it's I think largely a combination of. Uh, of population density and a lot of poorly regulated sources in uh, in North India. It is true that especially in winter, there's sort of these winds that blow across North India. So, you know, uh, pollution that's coming from Lahore, from Punjab, from Haryana will then find its way into, into Uttar Pradesh, uh, even beyond Delhi. And so kind of spread that out over, over this entire belt. Uh, but it's it's not... It's not just about uh, about the mountains or anything like that. There's a lot of local sources um, in there as well. I, I want to come to this controversial odd-even scheme that the Delhi government has instituted in the past and is, again, uh, instituting today to try and limit vehicular pollution. Um, and so, you know, some of our listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with this program uh, according to the odd-even program, vehicles with odd-numbered license plates uh, are permitted on the road on odd-numbered days and even-numbered plates on even-numbered days. And the idea is to really try to thin out um, the commuter traffic to try to limit vehicular uh, pollution. You evaluated the scheme's effectiveness way back in 2016. Tell us a little bit about what you and your collaborators found. Yeah, so we found in 2016, this was in January uh that the odd even scheme led to about a eight to thirteen percent uh, reduction in uh, in fine particulate pollution, uh, you know, during the day when when most of this uh, of this vehicular transport uh, uh, you know is contributing. Um, it wasn't so effective when they tried it again uh, uh, three or four months later, but yes, it did work to temporarily reduce pollution in that two-week period in uh, in uh, January. Um, it's actually, uh, uh, you know, sort of, I, I should flag that uh, that conclusion on how much of a difference it made and did it make a difference at all uh, is, uh, is contested, I think, uh, largely because uh, Evaluation methods uh, used by different groups that have studied this uh, this policy vary. So, you know, we think we did something pretty rigorous, and and that's sort of the number uh, we came up with. There are other studies that will show a slightly uh, lower number or even sort of uh, a zero effect. Um, I think we would back the eight to thirteen uh, as being the as being a good estimate. You know. Uh 
as this has come back up in recent days and played out uh, in the kind of news media cycle, you, you hear a lot of people, particularly people uh, who are associated with the ruling party or parties other than the Ahmadmi party, saying that, look, this whole scheme is a gimmick. It's really not addressing the fundamental drivers of this pollution. It's just a way to kind of um, try try and give the appearance or the veneer of doing something without actually tackling the root causes. Um, how would you kind of respond to that criticism? I think that's a fair criticism. So if you think about the odd-even scheme, it's incredibly uh, kind of inflexible. So it's the sort of thing you can inherently do only for a short period of time. Uh, the only country that has sort of, to my knowledge, tried that kind of odd-even scheme uh, for extended periods of time was actually Mexico. And in the long run, it led to pollution going up uh, because people bought these old cars with the right license plate to get around it. Uh, so in the, you know, in the India context, you can only do it for a short period of time, which means it's an emergency measure, which means it's it's not actually... Uh, reducing the the sources of air pollution that operate throughout the year. It's not even a useful emergency measure if you try it in November, which is when pollution is at its peak, because in those three or four weeks, uh, the overwhelming share of pollution is coming from these farmers burning crop residue. Uh, so then it's an emergency measure that's, that's tackling a minor source of pollution. Uh, so, you know, when I told you that 8 to 13 percent number, remember, third percentage means as a fraction of the baseline. Uh, and, you know, in January, you're not burning crops. So transport is more important. If you did it in November, it would have a, a much lower effect, uh, you know, would be my guess in my assessment. So I think that's a fair criticism. I think it's um, it's an idea. It should have been the starting point for a. Uh, uh, you know, multi-pronged, longer-term, uh, you know, sustained policy effort against air pollution. Uh, instead, in some ways, we've sort of stopped there. And so I think that's a fair criticism. So, so let me just ask you a little bit about the kind of multi-pronged response. You know, there are some people who thought that the situation would improve when governance in Delhi and in neighboring Punjab was politically unified in the hands of the Ahmadmi Party, which is the regional party that, as of 2022, controls both states. So now you have op governments in both Delhi and Punjab. And uh, given that so much of the crop burning takes place in Punjab, uh, which helps create the toxic conditions that one experiences in Delhi, um, shouldn't unified political control be able to mitigate, you know, what is ultimately a kind of classic coordination problem? Uh, that's a good question. So in these three weeks, yes, we now have a uniform, unified government. The Delhi government has in the past argued it can't do much about pollution because it's in a different state. That excuse doesn't hold uh, anymore. Uh, they've not been able uh, to solve the problem, nevertheless. And um there's a bunch of reasons for that. You could take a political economy view and say uh, that the political cost of uh, of making farmers stop burning their residue uh, is high enough that they'd rather take the short-term criticism that occurs over this three-week period because people forget. Um, so there's sort of a political economy explanation you could come up with that when you add up all the costs and benefits, um, it's still in their interests not to uh, not to do anything. 
from a purely political point of view. But I do think the criticism that the Ahmadmi Party is facing this year uh, stems from the fact that they do have unified control. Uh, and one thing you might hope is that because that kind of excuse is taken off the table, uh, that there will be uh, a lot of pressure on them uh, to not have things be as bad next year as it was this year. But, you know, it's 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 tricky to guess how politicians are, are doing their assessment. Certainly you've solved the, you know, one level of the coordination problem. I don't know whether um, the brutal accounting of what gets you votes uh, uh, still says give farmers a break and let Delhi suffer because Delhi voters will forget about this or vote for other reasons when the time comes around. I don't know if uh, if that's part of the calculus. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. I, I want to kind of bring in the central government here, and I, and I want to quote something that you recently tweeted. Uh, a few days ago, you wrote in a tweet, air pollution in North India is a coordination problem requiring regulatory action. Spillovers reduce individual state incentives. So a regulatory framework with poorly funded state regulators and a central body with neither enforcement authority nor accountability cannot work. Um, could you unpack that for us? What role is there for the central government um, if this burning uh, and this pollution is happening at a very kind of hyper-local level? So I think there are two points here. The first is that that statement is true uh, independently of burning. So a lot of pollution in Delhi comes from power plants which are located elsewhere or diesel generators that are outside the city or even transport outside the city. So, you know, the the meteorology and how pollution disperses does not care about where we draw straight boundary lines. So the statement about it being a coordination problem, and this is something the environment minister in Delhi brought up recently, which is a completely fair point, that statement is true, true throughout the year, and you will not solve the larger pollution problem uh, you know, uh, without without tackling that. Uh, it's true that for uh, that for crop burning, it's largely two states, Punjab and Haryana, which in those three weeks, so the coordination problem then, if you like, is is those two states and and Delhi. But my broader point was the more general point. Now, in India, the way uh, regulation has worked is our central regulator is for the most part a standard setting body. So they will, for example, say things like this is sort of the national ambient air quality standard that we need to have. Or here are some laws uh, or limits on pollution that industry need to follow. Uh, but all the enforcement and to a significant degree, the political accountability is then on individual state bodies, uh, state pollution control boards. And I think this has made it very difficult for states to implement programs that need to have rules that cross state boundaries. Uh, that's a larger problem than, than just crop burning. And I think it's absolutely true that we need an overhaul of our environmental regulatory framework uh, to make it easier to do these multi-state uh, programs. 
Um, emissions trading is another example of something that, you know, countries abroad have used to tackle industry, which inherently benefits from being, uh, you know, across states, right? And so that's that's severely missing in India. We have an underfunded central regulator that does not really have these powers and is not really politically accountable. So as you said, the conversation around Delhi is around the Delhi government or the Punjab government and so on. Uh, so the central government then does not have political accountability in the same way. All that put together means I think we're doing very badly in solving these coordination problems. Um, and so, you know, one role is money, uh, uh, but money has to be coupled with, uh, with a program that you're implementing. Uh, so the central government needs to fund uh, anti-pollution initiatives way more than they do right now. Uh, but they also need the authority to then uh, it's not a gift you give to one state, but it's a program that you run across states. Um, they have not done that. There is a national uh, program that the government uh, uh, did initiate to uh, to reduce pollution across the country. It's being characterized by failures on both these counts. There's money given out, but it's too little money to make any difference. And secondly, it's given at the city level, which means you have a small amount of money coming to a particular city, a municipality, or a local environment pollution control board. So they can't run anything that that goes across boundaries, and then it's not enough money to do very much internally either. Uh, so it's too little, and, and it's too decentralized. You know, Anand, one of the key lessons you highlight in your work is that there is a tremendous non-compliance issue when it comes to firms and industrial pollution. And I'm wondering if we could squ switch gears a little bit. Um, could you tell us how bad the non-compliance sort of gap is? Do we have a sense of the magnitude? And you know, are there strategies that you've seen or that you've studied to help India deal with this gap? So that's a great question. So the first point is uh, we do not have a great All India number because there is no way you can go to get high quality data on how much industries are polluting. Uh, that's a... And this kind of comes back to the original point about what data we have and what data we, we, we don't that you highlighted earlier. Yeah, well, it's a statement about both things. It's a statement about not collecting the data. It's a statement about when the data is collected, it may be falsified or unreliable. And it's a statement about opaqueness. Uh, pollution control boards are not making this data public often because it shows that there is a lot of non-compliance. Now, there have been individual studies done in Gujarat, in Maharashtra, um, some years ago that have found non-compliance rates of, you know, exceeding 50%. That means, you know, when you collect survey data or or put together prior uh, regulatory tests, you find half of the plants are uh, well above the stated legal limit and they're still operating and, and nothing's happening to them. So these non-compliance rates can be particularly high. Um, so so now it raises the question of why you have such high non-compliance. Um, and as I said, it's not only about the data not being available. That's that's part of it, uh, uh, data being falsified and so on. But it's also that, you know, one argument people have made is that we sort of have a nuclear legal situation where we have these command and control laws in India where pollution control boards can file criminal cases if they like against uh, factories for polluting too much. The transaction costs of doing that are incredibly high. So what that means is you, know, you cannot take action against large numbers of people 
um, to sort of sort of implement action imposes very large costs on industry and and involves court cases and so on. And so you then end up in an equilibrium where you're picking a few examples. You're picking a few egregious polluters and and you're maybe taking them to court. Uh, but you know, as a whole, people are able to get away with uh, with ignoring these laws uh, and polluting above those limits. So, so I would say it's a regulatory failure. Uh, you just do not have the machinery right now in India to uh, to effectively regulate industrial pollution. You know, in the previous answer, you, you you talked a bit about emissions markets, and and I wanted to ask you about a working paper that you have out with several co-authors in which you assess the effectiveness of a new emissions trading market in the Gujarati city of Surat. Um, this was an important test, right? Because it was a test of the proposition that emissions markets can, in fact, reduce air pollution in a developing country context. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about the market, how it works, and, and how did you go about analyzing its effectiveness? Yeah, so uh, the market uh, was started in Surat. That's what our paper is about. Uh, it worked very well, we think. Uh, it, it led, we think, to a 20%, uh, you know, uh, approximately reduction in pollution from industries in the market. Um, and so it's being scaled up across the state now. So we think it's a success story. The way that project worked was it was a randomized control trial. 50% of uh, uh, of sort of solid fuel burning plants uh, in Surat uh, were, were told that they would be part regulated with an emissions market. Uh, they were drawn at random. Another 50% were left under status quo uh, regulation. This is the first time any sort of randomized control trial has been done on markets. We, we see them used in different parts of the world. We have never had sort of gold standard evidence on, on how much uh, you know, pollution has reduced. And so we can then compare these two groups, group A regulated under the market, group B regulated under status quo regulation, and see what happens to pollution in the in the two settings. Now, um, what's interesting about a developing country context, I think, is your if you pick up an economics textbook, it will often tell you emissions markets are great because they allow people to buy and sell permits, and so they reduce costs on industry um, relative to alternatives. But as we discussed, India has got a bigger problem, which is that the alternative isn't even being implemented. So in the Indian context, you're really asking two questions. You're asking, can you even implement an emissions market? Will the rules be followed? And then if the rules are followed, uh, will pollution go down? So I think beyond the effect on pollution, a really big part of what we found was that the rules were followed. In a market, you fine people if they are above the limit. So there are automatic financial penalties. Uh, there are not criminal, uh, you know, uh, criminal proceedings. The Pollution Control Board was able to implement those fines. Um, and they switched to automated monitoring that is completely transparent. So every plant could see how much other, you know, how many permits have been bought and sold in the market, what's the total emissions, their own pollution, and so on. Um, and so the data quality seemed to have improved a lot. So we think that suggests that emission markets have a role to play. And I would say not just because they reduce industry costs, but because it actually seems like those rules can be implemented by Indian regulators, given the sort of staff constraints 
uh, monetary constraints and kind of political economy settings in which they operate. So, so this to me was like the most uh, interesting part, right? Uh, because one of the big takeaways from this research, and, and you get to this in the conclusion of the paper, is that a significant portion of the costs of environmental regulation are due not to abatement costs, but rather the fixed costs of monitoring and enforcing regulation, right? So, so to kind of reframe this slightly different way, does this suggest that India and say countries like India can cost effectively reduce emissions if they invest enough on the front end on monitoring and regulation? Uh, yes, I think uh, especially for industry now that that you know that statement will vary by sources. So you know, but let's let's stick to industry right now because we're we're talking about that. So, for example, when you set up a factory in India, they tell you you have to install this, you know, pollution control equipment and, and so on. Uh, and so you have to pay for it. And it's easy to see if a factory has installed this stuff or not. Uh, then plants, when they when you see them out of compliance, it means those that equipment is not maintained. It's not being run and so on. Um, and so really, then it's not about huge costs being placed on factories in order to cut pollution. It's just as much about how do I put this regulatory system in place that will force people to obey the law? And I think when we say upfront investment, some of that is money. Indian regulators are understaffed and so on. Um, but some of that is what are the rules of the game you're going to write down? Uh, Indian laws are basically copied, well, not literally copied, but very similar to, for example, the U.S. Uh, regulatory framework before they implemented the Clean Air Act amendments, which brought in place markets and so on. So they were, so they were using the types of regulation that are heavily funded, uh, you know, and in some ways fairly centralized regulatory frame system in a developed country was using. It's not working in India. And so when you say upfront regulation investment, you're absolutely right. But it's not just money. It's sort of thinking about how should the system be structured in order to work in an Indian context. Um, that means both the institutions and the programs that those institutions are enforcing. I, I want to kind of zoom out before we end this conversation with 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 some of the kind of you know, big, big picture here. Uh, in 2018, you and your co-authors published a paper called The Solvable Challenge of Air Pollution in India. And I should just mention to our listeners, um, check out our show page. We will link to all of Anand's writings that we've talked about uh, on the show today. In that particular 2018 paper, you and your colleagues highlight four key facts about pollution in India. And let me just ask you about the first, um, because you write that improving air pollution levels to meet globally established air quality standards will have huge health benefits to ordinary Indians. So I guess my question to you is this. How far off is India from those uh, globally established air quality standards? And number two, what impact would attaining those standards have on people's health in a kind of concrete fashion? Yeah, so India is, uh, the WHO has standards now that are very strict, um, you know, very hard to meet for anywhere in the world. But even just looking at India's own standards, we are sort of out of compliance with them in, in many parts of the country, especially North and Central Northwest India. Uh, there are estimates that suggest that uh, the gain in life expectancy, uh, you know, in India from uh, sort of reducing pollution to the WHO standards would be over five years. 
Um, it's uh, even compared to kind of the national standards, it's sort of off the order of two years. Uh, even more, seven or eight years by some estimates in the really kind of off the charts polluted parts of the country, uh, such as New Delhi. So these are incredibly large health costs. And really, we should be looking at pollution not as an environment problem where someone writes down some limits and some standards on particulate matter that are numbers that no one understands, but a very basic health problem. Like we think about malaria, we think about diarrhea, we think about cancer. Uh, air pollution is something that reduces our lives. And and so those are kind of the numbers uh, that come up. It's, uh, you know, the there's a paper in Lancet which suggests that air pollution is among the uh, third or fourth largest sort of risk factor globally um, affecting uh, mortality and life expectancy. So it's a huge problem everywhere. It's a huge, even bigger problem uh, in India. And I think, uh, you know, to this question of how far we are off, I'm just going to close with, you know, it's an interesting fact. Uh, last year in in the Indian parliament, the Ministry of Environment uh, responded to a parliamentary question arguing that there is no concrete health evidence linking air pollution uh, to, uh, to, you know, health impacts and higher mortality. So we're almost at some level in a state of denial about the magnitude of the problem. Um, I think that is rapidly going away, but, you know, we're not going to solve a problem of this, uh, of this degree without having at a central level and across states an acceptance of the size of the health hazard and a recognition that environmental action is health policy. It's not sort of some other bucket of things we're doing for undefined reasons that act as a constraint on growth. We're doing it because you cannot have productive, healthy people uh, if you do not have clean air. Anit, let me just kind of bring this to a close by asking you about you know one of these questions that that I seem to get asked a lot, and I'm sure you do as well, which is uh, why voters don't seem to care more, right? And I think that people ask that because they assume that if uh, voters actually cared about pollution, they would punish politicians for their poor results on this front. And then arguably, things might change, you would create kind of, you know, this um, positive feedback cycle. Um, you know, is it correct? Do you think to say voters don't prioritize air pollution? And, and if so, uh, you know, where does that leave us? So I don't think it's, uh, it's, all the you know survey evidence or talking to people suggests people do care about air pollution. So it's absolutely not the case that they don't care about air pollution. So you know then, and I think this is more your area of expertise than mine, is a question about if people care about several things of which air pollution is one, under what settings are you going to win and lose an election uh, because you were unable to make a difference to air quality? And Presumably, for instance, if you can claim the problem is bigger than you or can successfully argue that uh, your opposition parties were just as bad as you are, you can possibly sort of make it a wash and then win or lose an election based on other things that people care about. It is true that solving pollution, reducing pollution to a, ma to a level that you can perceptibly see the difference is going to take a multi-pronged effort uh, 
and will take several years, which means it's possibly tricky for a single state government to kind of get the return on investment that they would need within an election cycle uh, to uh, to pull it off. So they, they, they probably fear, and I think in my work, I, I definitely get this impression, that they will irritate a whole bunch of people by putting transport restrictions or or new rules of or telling farmers they can't burn, but the air will not look visibly cleaner in the two-year period before the next election. And so, you know, uh, it's not worth it. And I think that, again, is a reason to think of this as a much more centralized long-term problem. We, you know, we are not trying to electrify the country on a purely state-by-state -state basis. We're not trying to deal with diarrhea on a purely state-by-state -state basis. Uh, and so maybe air pollution is the kind of thing that you know you have to uh, tackle in a slightly different way from a very decentralized approach. Um, as long as we have decentralized approaches, you you sort of, and that's why we tried the emission market as a city level and scaling up. Uh, you've you've sort of uh, got to come up with smart ideas uh, that work at, at that level. My guest on the show this week is Anand Sudarshan. He's an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Warwick and a senior fellow at the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago, also known as EPIC. Uh, Anand, this was so great to talk to you. You laid things out beautifully. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work and um, you know, you're tackling, I think, one of the biggest public policy dilemmas that exists in India and across South Asia. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much, Milan, for having me on. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we mentioned on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthemasha.com. Tim Martin is our audio engineer and Mira Verghese is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.